And so today what I would like to do is I would like to teach you on the subject of worship. That's not my title, but we are in this sermon series called Worship. First and foremost, congratulations and thank you, AWC, because we didn't only just reach the city, but I think that we reached the nation last Sunday at our Easter resurrection service. I don't know about you, but just being able to see you physically doing the fist bumps, through not through the window, but on the window glass, that was absolutely amazing. And all of you that work in um, our, our local government, all of you that work with nonprofits, that work with the Nebraska health um, um, a, a commission and committee. We thank you so much for not just giving us permission, but giving us the privilege to reach our city and giving us permission to do it while also complying with the rules and regulations for our state. But while we're in this, this, this series called Wordship, I think it's really important that we understand the foundation of worship, where it comes from, so, because it's hard to understand what part you're supposed to play if you never take the time to look at the handbook. It's really difficult to understand worship if it's something that you show up late to on Sunday morning and you're hoping that we get out of it early at like once it's on its, like its third or fourth song. It's difficult to understand worship when you think that it's a set list. Come on. It's difficult to understand worship when you think that it's a key change or you think it's Hezekiah Walker versus Carrie Job or, or, it's, or it's a strum of a guitar versus an organ hit. And what happens with the people of God is that we have closely associated worship with singing and with dancing and with the with the 10 to 30 minutes that we have before the sermon comes. But the problem is, is that God more so disassociates worship with the act of what we call worship, and he more so connects his worship with the posture of the heart. He, he connects worship with where are you? How are you feeling? What do you think about me? Why are you worshiping me? So then what happens with us, the people of God, is that we end up using worship the wrong way. Dr. Miles Monroe, um, um, dad's mentor, dad's father, the man that really has still been leading our lives because we know that he's on vacation, right? He, he always used to speak to us about worship in the sense that wherever you are in your worship, God gets like the aftertaste of what that is. So if you're frustrated, God gets your worship, but it takes like frustration. Like if you're sad, he gets worship, but it's, it sounds like sadness. If you're in sin, then he gets the taste of sin. So one thing that we have to understand as worshipers is that we can begin to miss manage this tool called worship because we don't know how to use it. This is what it looks like. Have you ever been in a place where it, all hell was breaking loose in your house? Either you ask God, God, if you save me through this one, I'll never do it again. And you worship God from that broken state. I want to make sure that you understand that whatever position your heart is in, that's the taste of worship that God gets. What we have to understand is that when we give our worship to God, wherever it's coming from, that it's literally something that we're putting on a fire for God to consume. Worship isn't something that you do, but worship is something that God consumes. If you believe that, I need you to type it out. Like, worship isn't just something where you lift your hands and, and, you, and, and you sing, but worship is literally a byproduct that we are giving to God to consume on our behalf. So today what I'm wanting to do is I want to make, make, uh, break down what worship is, and I kind of want to give you some context of where worship came from and how we're supposed to do it. So we've all read the scriptures a million different times, but I think sometimes when we read scripture, we read them because they sound good, but not necessarily because we really understand, have knowledge, and know how to apply wisdom to the scripture. So in John 4, 24, it says this, and you probably all know it, all my Bible scholars. Listen to this. It says, God is a spirit, and they that worship him, they, that's you and me, if we're going to worship him, we have to worship him in two different areas. Write it down. It is spirit and in truth. I'm going to say it one more time. It's spirit and in truth. 
But then we jump down to Romans, and Paul is beginning to write these letters to the church and to these people that are trying to figure out, okay, we have relationship with Jesus. We know that he died on the cross for our sins. But when it comes to communication, all we know is prayer. So how do we worship? Listen to what Paul says in Romans 12 and 1. He says, God is a spirit. And they, um, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, he says that you must literally, like, give your body to him as a living sacrifice. That when you're worshiping God, it's not just raising your hands, it's not just singing, it's not just dancing, but you are literally taking your body, breaking it before God, and offering it to him as a gift. So here's my first question for you this morning. If you had to gauge what your worship was based off of your sacrifice of your body, how would you rate yourself? This is what I'm saying. Are you giving God the leftover broken parts of you in worship? Or are you giving him the most amazing parts of you? Are you giving him the reserve of your energy? Or are you worshiping the first minute that you wake up in the morning? Are you singing his praises all the way throughout the day? Or are you only running to him in worship when you need something or you need to be saved from something? One thing that I need you to understand is that where we mess up in thinking is, is thinking that worship is what we do before the sermon rather than how we take our walk with God every single day. So moving forward, today we're, I'm going to unbox a little bit of scripture. We're going to go through an entire book of the Bible. Now, now I know you're trying to pr probably like, what the heck, how are we going to do that? But it's going to be contextual. Now, I want, I want them to throw up this slide, um, uh, context. Do, do you know what, what, what context means? So context basically means the circumstances that form the setting for an event, statement, or an idea. And in terms of which it can be what? fully understood and assessed. Before we jump into the word today, I, I want to teach to you. I don't want to preach at you, but I want to make sure that we understand this concept. When you're reading the word of God, sometimes where Christians stumble, where we fumble, and where we trip up is where we try to take the word of God as it was written thousands of years ago, copy and paste it to today. And a lot of people, when they don't line up, what they do is they'll say that the Bible is irrelevant, God's not speaking, or the word of God is dead. But what the word of God is supposed to be looked at is in this lens of context. Context basically means this. Something that happened 2,000 years ago can be, can be relevant today if I look at it through the lens of how today would look at it. So we're going to talk about sacrifice. We're going to talk about killing, uh, not, not killing animals, but sacrificing animals. And I know that if Peter's watching right now, they're like, there's no way that you're sacrificing animals and we don't want you to take your dog or your cat or your hamster or go get a chicken breast and cut it in half. No, 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 no. Every time you see the word sacrifice, instead of seeing a lamb, instead of seeing a goat, literally see yourself. Whenever you see worship, don't think about what you just did about 10, 15 minutes ago. Think about how you live your life. Like context is taking the word of God and stripping it down so that it makes sense in your now. I know that this is so important because so many of us right now, as we watch the news, we watch the news, we take it, we copy and we paste it to our lives, and then we, we lose our faith. But what you need to understand is that the same way that you look at the word of God and you apply it to your life in context, you also need to apply everything that you're hearing, that you're seeing on social media, that you're seeing on the news. You need to apply that to your life with context. Yes, this is what you're telling me to do. And yes, I'm going to comply as far as wearing my mask, not going out all these different places, not having every other person at the crib. But as far as it means with context, I use my faith. So yes, I'm going to do what you're telling me to do. But my faith says that every time that you put something on the television, I'm supposed to drop to my knees and call on to God. Every time that you tell me I'm supposed to shut in and shelter, I'm supposed to be looking for other opportunities to bless my neighbor, to bless somebody else. So where the people of God, where we begin to miss it with 
with worship, when we begin to mix it with our faith, is that we take things out of context. But what I'm hoping today is that I can give you a lens that you will be able to see your worship correctly and see the role of God in your worship correctly. Are you ready? I said, are you ready? All right, let's do it. So listen to this. The book of Leviticus. So many times when we read the book of Leviticus, there is this misnomer that the book of Leviticus was written by the Levites or it was written for the Levites or Aaron and his sons that they wrote all of these things down when they fled into the desert while everybody else was worshiping calves. But one thing that we have to understand as Bible scholars, as kingdom citizens, is that the word of God is literally a collection of stories that are kind of out of order. But if you read them in an order, it tells you the entire story from each to where we are. So Leviticus being the third book of the Bible, it comes in succession to Passover. It comes into succession where Moses and the people have left out of Egypt, and now they're in the desert. So I want to make sure you understand something. Pastor Martin, as we were um, um, visualizing and as we were observing um, we were observing a Passover this last week. What we did every single day was what the Israelites were doing in, in the desert. So where I'm picking up today in our, in our sermon series, Worship, is where Pastor Martin left off. So at this point in the book of Leviticus, I want you to understand a couple of things. That this book is written by a priestly source. It, it's anonymous. We don't know who it is, but we can, pretty much, we can pretty much assume that there was somebody that was hired by Moses to sit with him while he spoke to God. Or after Moses spoke with God, he would come and he would recite what he had with God with this man. Because the book of Leviticus is basically a memoir or a dialogue between Moses and God while he went up to the mountain for the people. You remember the story that God delivers them out of Egypt. There's the plague. There's the ten, um, there's the ten plagues. There's all the darkness. There's the death angel that comes. He tells his people, take the blood of a clean animal, the first first fruit, right? Take the blood, put it on top of the doorpost, and I'm going to pass you over. Once that happens happens, Pharaoh's going to let you go, you're going to be free. So what happens is, is after that, Moses takes the people into the desert. Then Moses goes up to a mountain. He has this amazing opportunity to meet God. He gets these 10 rules that we call the what? 10 commandments. He comes back down to the people. But the thing that happens is that while he was up in the mountain, the people that were down on the ground, they kind of lose their mind. They start worshiping false idols. They start taking the gold that they took from Egypt. And instead of giving it to God, they end up making God's out of it. I want to make sure that you understand sometimes that you understand something. Sometimes you can take your worship and your worship is supposed to be a gift to God, but sometimes we take our worship and we make an idol out of it. I know I'm talking to you. I'm tap dancing on your big toe. Instead of taking the gold that they took from Egypt and offering it back to God as a first fruit in the desert for delivering them from slavery, they took the gold and they made an idol out of it and they worshiped it. So my first, my second question to you this morning, the first question was how would you base your sacrificial worship? The second question question is this. Does your worship idolize God or does your worship idolize itself? So many times we get so stuck in the physicality of worship. How high can I lift my hands? How many tears can I draw? I know that they're going to have a podcast on Sunday, so how yell can I, how loud can I yell from the fourth row back so that somebody hears me on the podcast at the seven-minute mark? No, no, no. It's not about the physical part because if you begin to worship your worship, then you're telling God that your worship is more important than him. Worship is a gift that you give God. One thing we have to understand about service is that the only part that's for God is our worship. 
The only part for God is our worship. Anytime that the pastor is up here teaching, Pastor Martin's teaching, if we're on Facebook, if we're on um, um, live stream, if we're on YouTube, God, his, it's not that his ears are closed, but the only part that is for him, the only gift that we can literally give God ourselves is worship. Think about it. First fruit is a sign of worship, but first fruit is you giving God a piece of what's, of, of what's already his. Worship is the only thing that you can give God. So listen to this. In the book of Leviticus, there's the ten plagues, there's the death angel, but then God visits them, um, uh, and, and he invites the people in, back into covenant with him in the desert. Moses receives the Ten Commandments. The people of God, they ended up, they were, they were trusted to honor God with their obedience. But then they break that covenant by what I was talking about earlier, by worshiping false idols and committing acts in direct violation with the promises they made. Then listen to this. So God wants, uh, God's want was to come in, in the midst of them and to live with his people. And they, they, they would do these things called tabernacles where when they left Egypt, they couldn't worship because they didn't have a place. And then once they moved to the desert, they also didn't have, to have, they didn't have a place. So they literally had to make these, uh, uh, these tents out of sticks and stones and, and, and sheets. But since they were moving around, they had to be able to be picked up and moved around. So as you can imagine, anytime that they wanted to worship God, they literally had to make a place for him to meet them in. My third question is this. Right now where you are... Is your worship in the building, or are you able to set up a tent anywhere and meet God? The problem with the Israelites is that they believed that they had to set up a tent to meet with him. And what God was so frustrated with them was is this. You need me to enter into a tent to meet you. But my biggest thing is I want to enter into your soul. I want to literally live on the inside. So my question to you this morning, my third question before I even get into my sermon is, are you looking forward to worshiping when you come back, when we have our homecoming service here at AWC? Or are you able to literally build a house for God inside of your heart where he's able to not just to live there, but he's able to reside and to thrive. So today, I don't know if you can tell, but, this, but my sermon title this morning is Spirit and Truth. Come on, say it with me. Spirit and Truth. Now, you see the, you see the photo up, up on the screen, and I want to tell you a little, bit, a little bit of a story. So about four or five years ago, I started, like, food prepping my food, right? And I got tired of baking it because, like, you can only do uh, – um, uh, chicken so many ways where it's delicious and it's also nutritious for your body and you can't fry it, right? So I got tired of baking it and one day I was like, man, you know what? I really want to grill this chicken, but I had never done it before. So I just thought that I'd be good and bad by myself and do it by myself. So I went to the grocery store and I bought all the things that I thought I needed. I went down to the basement because that's where our, um, our grill is. It's on the patio. I went to the patio and I started to make a fire, right? So I took out the charcoal, put it in the thing, didn't pile it up. I just threw it in there. It was flat. It was terrible. Then I took what I thought was lighter fluid, but it was actually fire um, accelerant. Now, I don't know if you know about this. Lighter fluid helps you start a fire. Accelerant helps you make a forest fire. So I'm literally sitting there squeezing this bottle, <laughs> squeezing this bottle on the coals, thinking I'm about, man, I'm about to grill all this chicken. It's about to be straight. I'm about to have all this food for the next couple of weeks. Thank God my dad was upstairs, and evidently he was on the, he, we have a patio, and we have a deck. And he was on the deck, and evidently he smelled what was going on. And he says, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm using the lighter fluid 
to make, uh, to make a fire so I can, I can grill the chicken. Dad snatched the accelerant out of my hand. He marched me inside. And he says, you are about to blow up the entire house. And I was like, no, this is lighter fluid. He says, no, this is accelerant. So then basically what I asked him, I said, so what am I supposed to do? This is what he said. He said, the only way that you're going to get your chicken to be grilled is if you have all the proper ingredients. What I'm trying to make sure that we understand today is that worshiping God outside of spirit and truth is like me trying to grill chicken without lighter, fuel, flu, uh, lighter fluid and, and, and charcoal. So I might have chicken that might be edible, but it won't taste as good because the inputs that I put into it are not the right ones. Most of us, we think that we're worshiping, but in real reality, we're using the wrong tools to get there. We're using our past. We're using our sickness. We're using sadness. We're using being frustrated as the fuel. And what we have to understand is that your worship is an offering that you give to God. Have you ever eaten at somebody's house that was always upset? You ever eaten with somebody who cooked angry or cooked frustrated? The food might taste a little bit okay, but it tastes like anger. There's something different when somebody literally puts their foot, not literally, but when somebody puts their foot in the food or when they put their love and their affection in it, because what you put into it is what the person's going to taste. Write it down. What you put into your food, what you put into your offering is what the person is going to taste. So this is my first point for today. I want you to write this down, that worship begins on the inside. Now, remember, before they were out in the desert, Moses had this opportunity to speak with God privately on the mountain. He was literally in God's space. And we understand that better is one day in your court than a thousand elsewhere. Like one day with God is a thousand days. Like you don't know how long he was up there on that mountain. But there's something that really becomes specific in Leviticus. The book before Leviticus is Exodus and God is with Moses. But specifically in Leviticus 1 and 1, listen to what it says. It says the Lord called out to Moses where? From the tent. One thing that's really interesting is that Moses used to have clearance into God's presence, literally a, a, a page before. But then when you turn the page, now the place where Moses was able to be inside of, he's been kicked and cast out. And God has to talk to him from a place that he used to be. One thing that we have to understand is that worship is impossible without the presence of God. Listen to what I'm saying. If you are crying, if you're screaming, if you feel the Holy Spirit, but there's no God presence, it's just crying. What Moses had to understand and probably had to feel for the first time was I'm doing all the things. I got the lighter fluid. I got the charcoal. I got the chicken. I got the grill, but I can't eat it. Like, like what's missing? The thing that you're missing is other people to eat with you, Joshua. But what Moses was saying is like, I've worshiped. I've, 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 uh, I, I've killed the animal. I have the blood all over, all, all over the altar. I mean, the people are here. Like, we're worshiping. We're crying out. But he's like, this feels weird. And the thing is that in Leviticus, what we understand is that Moses was worshiping God from outside of his presence. If you are outside of the presence of God, and I'm not talking about the goosebumps because there are songs that, have, that don't have Jesus in them that give you goosebumps. What I'm talking about is the presence of God. When you know that he's there, you understand that he's around, and you have the wisdom to know that God is in this moment. You cannot celebrate a king outside of his presence. So there are so many people that say that they have a worship life, but they have no relationship. That's why, number one, worship begins with relationship. I want you to write it down. I want you to write it down in the chat. Worship begins with relationship. Secondly, what we have to understand 
is that God wants to be as close to us as possible. Think about it. God created us as father, which means that we're his children, which means I don't know a good father that doesn't want to be like totally like smothered by his children when he opens the door. I don't know a good mom or a good dad or a good parent that doesn't want to walk through the door and like three or four tiny bodies like literally lava, like, like uh, level them at the door. So you have to understand this frustration that God has with, with Moses and that God has with his people. So listen to this. The book of Leviticus is how God provides a way for unholy beings to be made over and able to re-enter into relationship with him. He doesn't want to fix your worship life. What he wants to fix is your, is your relationship with him. So the entire book of, of Leviticus is God laying out his law with a one-on-one -on -one conversation with Moses, telling him, this is what you're going to tell the people. This is how they get back into relationship with me so that their worship actually makes sense. Because remember what we said before, worship without re relationship means absolutely nothing. But when we look at this thing, remember what I said. It says that the whole book of Leviticus is how God provides a way for what? unholy beings. One thing we have to understand is that God is holy. That's my third point today. I like, we sing the songs, only you are holy. God is holy. Holy, holy are you, Lord God Almighty, right? We sing the song, and it sounds beautiful, and it's absolutely amazing. You turn that track on on a road trip, everybody in the car is slain. Trust me, in the Williams household, wherever we're going, you turn that joint on, it's a wrap. But the problem is, is that the people of God don't really understand what the word holy is. So I'm going to take you to school really, really quick. So listen to this. Holy in our English derivative and our English language means to be set apart or to be unique. But if you really want to understand the word of God, you have to understand that the word of God was originally written in, in two different languages, in Greek and in Hebrew. So when, remember what we were talking about, context, when you take a word out of its original translation and you translate it into another, you'll lose some of the power of what's there. The word in the Greek, holy, literally means agios. What that word means is that it's different. It's unlike the rest. And this word in the Greek, um, holy, means unable to be in the presence of unlike creatures. Meaning that if, it, if, if, if it's powerful, it can't be in places that are unpowerful. If, if, if it's good, it can't be in places that are bad. And if it's God who is holy, that means that he cannot have anything in his presence that is what? Unholy. So listen to this. So if God is holy, then his space is holy. And if his space is holy, then everything in his space must be holy. His, his space and holiness basically means that it's full of his presence, it's full of his essence, it's full of life and purity. But if Israel wants to be in God's presence, they too must be holy or as close to holiness as they could possibly get. The importance of God's holiness is, is, is predicated before this time where we see his holiness exemplified. Remember in the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. So many times when we read this word, so many times when it's preached, we preach, that Ad, we preach this, uh, this sermon that Adam and Eve were bad, that they sinned and that they were terrible. But I want to make sure you understand something and we put on our kingdom hat and we take off our religious one. When God created man, he already had a plan for escape. We, were, we believe he's omnipotent, he's omniscient, he's everywhere at all times, and he knows everything. So he knew that they were going to fall, and if he knew that they were going to fall, he already had a plan to take care of, of, of their sin. But the plan that, G, that God never looked forward to was having to kick people out of his presence because they were no longer like him. 
when Adam and Eve were created, they were just like God, which means that they were holy. But when they sinned, they had to be kicked out, not because of their sin, but because God loved them so much. He said, I am holy. Now that you're impure, I have to kick you out because of love, not because of frustration. So any sermon that you have heard where it says that Adam and Eve were kicked out because God was mad, I want to make sure that you ball that up and throw it in the trash, as we say at the house. What you have to understand is that God loved us so much that he kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden to save their lives. Like, I, I want to make sure you get it. God is holy. Like, anything in his presence that is not holy will literally be consumed, will die, will not have any more existence. And it's not that he's a bad God. It just, it's just that the space around him is beautiful. It's kind of like when people try to, like, look at the sun for hours and then they end up, end up being blind and they curse the sun. The sun isn't bad. It provides light. You were not in the right space. It's like if you were to drive to the sun, if that was possible, and you get consumed by it, you can't be upset with the sun because the sun says in order for you to understand the heat distance, you need to give me some space so that you can enjoy something that's, that may consume you. God is holy. Therefore, people that are impure, things that are impure, or people that are impure cannot be in his presence. I want to make sure you understand this because if you're worshiping God from an impure place, it's not worship. Because if you are impure, if we are in a place, come on, people of God, come on, don't get sleepy, don't get tired. Like, 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 let's tap into this. If you are impure, if you are not exemplifying holiness, you can't be in God's presence. And remember what we talked about earlier, worship only happens if you're in God's presence. So if you're not in God's presence and you're worshiping God from an impure place, all you're doing is crying and snotting by yourself. But the book of Leviticus and the story that we're about to go through is all going to explain how we're supposed to worship and why it's so important. So when we look at the book of, of, uh, of Leviticus, we have to understand that this is a conversation between Moses and God. Now remember, a day with God, we, like we have no time with it. I don't know if you ever spent time in your prayer closet and then two, three hours later or 45 minutes later and you're like, wow, I did, where did the time go? It's because when you're with God, there is no time. Time literally stops. So the book of Leviticus is like if we were to take a snapshot of what it was for Moses to be with God. But when you look at Leviticus, it's broken up into three major themes. And if you look at the word, um, when you read the word in, in the Hebrew, if you read the word um, in, in, in the Greek, you read the word from the outside in. I want you to write that down, from the outside in. Basically what that looks like is what Pastor Martin says. You read like the first five or six chapters, then you read the last chapters from bottom to top. And in the middle of the scripture is usually where you find what God is trying to get to you or what the author is trying to get to you. So when you're reading the book of Leviticus, there are three major themes that we run into that, 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 that help us get to where we're supposed to go. And these are those themes. The first theme is ritual. The second theme is priesthood. And the third theme is purity. So when you begin to read Leviticus, the beginning of the book begins with ritual and it ends with ritual. Then the next chapter begins with priests and it ends with priests. And then the next chapter after that begins with purity, ends with purity. But the funny thing about the book of Leviticus is that the, at the middle of the book, it's this conversation about atonement, about being made right, about having everything that you've done your entire life covered over. So what we're going to do is I'm going to walk you through this scripture and hopefully it gives you some context as we move forward. So listen to this. 
When we look at Leviticus in the beginning, in Leviticus chapters 1 through 7, there's this concept of ritual. What we have to understand is that before, people didn't have relationship with God, so they had to do ritual. What religion gives you is ritual, and what kingdom gives you is relationship. Ritual basically is a whole bunch of different things that you have to do in succession in order for God to see you, which means that you can't kneel before you pray, you can't pray before you lift your hands, you can't lift your hands before you cry. So if you lift your hands before you cry, you have to start all over and start the process over. So the people of God that were in the desert, they, in order to worship God, they had to follow rit ritual. And this was a couple of the things that they had to do. First of all is that they had to do um, sacrifices. And one of their sacrifices was to give thanks to God, and the other sacrifice was to repent. So one was to give an offering of your first fruit, basically giving God back what he had already allowed you to get. If you planted corn, you gave him a piece of corn. If you planted hay, you gave him a piece of hay or barley or wheat or whatever that was. As saying, God, thank you so much for what you've given me an opportunity to have. The other was in repentance, when you took an animal that was the best of your flock, you killed it, you burned it on the offering, and you said, God, I'm so sorry for what I did. Would you please forgive me? The other part of ritual that's at the end of the book is feasts. Remember, we were just observing Passover, but the people of God, in order to be in right standing with God, they had to literally do these things. They had to observe the Passover and take it. They had to observe first fruit and give it. They had to observe Pentecost and celebrate it. They had to, to observe tabernacles and literally spend all of their time worshiping God. But the thing about rituals is that they're not sustained. What, what I want to make sure that you understand is that if the only time that you can worship God is when oceans come on, it's not worship. If the only time that you can worship is when the keyboard player puts the D diminished flat five over the six, then he goes to the four and he sits on it, and then the cahoon box is played or the drums and the cymbals are played, then you worship. What that is is ritualistic. It's not relationship. The book of Leviticus is going to tear up your worship life. We're going to teach you how to worship. So that way, when we come back to this building in our homecoming service, your worship will look a little bit different, not because you understand it, but now you have context on how to use it. The second theme that was brought in, remember, there are three themes, right? The second theme that is brought into this, uh, that's brought into this book is this conversation about being priesthood. So if rituals were what the people had to do, then there had to have been some people that were risen up out of that group, out of that flock, that were able to represent them with God. What we understand in this story, if you're following with me, is that Moses had a really good friend named Aaron. God gave Moses Aaron because he was his homie. He helped him talk. Moses had a stuttering problem. Moses couldn't speak. They also said that, Mo that, that Moses, uh, Moses, like, he literally stuttered over himself to the point where he was unrecognizably, like, like deaf. Like, people couldn't, like, like, it was almost as if they couldn't hear because he, he was talking so bad. So God gives him Aaron. But while they're walking into the desert, what God does is he speaks to Aaron, and Aaron has a couple of sons. And God says, you know what? Okay, Moses is already busy. I'm going to be talking to him for a couple of days, giving him the books, um, giving him the rules of whether people are supposed to worship. That's the one-on-one -on -one conversation in Leviticus. So he looks at Aaron. He says, Aaron, you know what? I'm going to use you and your boys to talk to the people. So you're going to be the first priest. But I want you to understand what this theme of priests means in Leviticus. Listen to this. Priest means worship is how you represent. Being a priest is how you represent. Ritual is worship is, is what you do. Ritual is what you have to do in succession to be in relationship with God. But being a priest is, is, is how you represent. So listen to this. When you are, uh, become a priesthood, when, when you get into this opportunity that I'm able to speak with you by way of internet or whatever, it's, it's not 
that I was good enough to be in this position. It was that I was ordained by our man of God to stand in this position. So what happens with Aaron and his boys is that in Leviticus 8 in the 10th chapter, they end up being ordained. So Aaron and his sons are chosen on behalf of Israel to represent the people. So basically what they do is they represent God to the people, and then they go and talk to the people and figure out what's going on with them, and they take the people's request, and they represent themselves back to God. But there's this problem when it comes to being a a priest. There are these things called qualifications, because somebody said write out qualifications. Every person that you hear standing behind a pulpit that you see with a Bible that looks good on television, that looks good on Facebook, book might be a priest but the question is were they ordained and do they follow the qualifications for their position we'll get to that later Aaron and his sons had to understand if we're going to be called to be priests there are some qualifications that we have to live and these are the qualifications that they had to live by firstly is that they had to live at the highest level of moral integrity Think about it. They're literally representing God to the people and vice versa. They can't be thinking about if they're drinking or if they're smoking or if they're sleeping around or if they're trying to figure out where they're going to get their next hit from. Not that smoking a joint or drinking or sleeping around is necessarily bad or evil, which is sinful, which God has blood that will take care of it. But if you're going to be a priest, if you're going to represent me as God, there are certain conversations that we shouldn't even be having. Like, 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 we shouldn't even have to talk about alcohol. We shouldn't have to talk about marijuana. We shouldn't have to talk about drinking. We shouldn't have to, have to talk about lying or manipulating or addiction or pornography or you don't think you're good enough. If you're going to be called to be a priest in my kingdom out here, Aaron, like, you're out here in the desert. I can't be trying to talk to the people and I'm worried about you because you're hungover behind, the, behind a tent. Like, there are certain conversations, if you're going to worship God, they shouldn't be there. So what happens is, is that Aaron ends up ordaining his children. But the problem is, is that the last qualification for their children is that they have to have a purpose to be in God's presence. This is what it means. When they walked into the tent, remember what we talked about. The presence of God was so heavy. His presence, his holiness was so strong that when you walked into his presence, what they would do if you were a priest is that they would tie a rope around your leg. Because if you went in there and you were impure, you were unholy or you were dirty in the eyes of God, not saying you were a bad person, but you had things on your spirit, things on your person that weren't there, that you would literally drop dead in God's presence and they had to pull you out. So as you can imagine, Aaron's kids get really excited, like, man, we're priests, bro. We're priests. I've been ordained. But they didn't know the qualifications. And they, two of them walk into God's presence unannounced. They basically spring one upon God that they think. They drop dead, and Aaron ends up grieving, understanding. Uh, he, he ends up grieving the loss of his two boys because they didn't represent themselves or God correctly. The thing that I want to make sure that you understand is that your worship is how you present. Your worship is how you represent. Worship isn't just lifting your hands. Worship isn't just singing. But worship is literally how people look at your life. When they look at your life, do they see you or do they see God? When people look at you, how you love on your wife, uh, um, um, sir, when you, the way you love on your husband, ma'am, the way that your children love each other, the way that you honor your boss, the way that you honor the person at the grocery store, do they see you or do they see an, expo- expo- uh, uh, do they see, uh, an expose of how you love God? What I want to make sure that we understand is that worship isn't just singing and dancing, but worship is literally the representation of how you live your life to God. Pastor spoke his message a couple years ago about how we're 
kings and priests. And one thing about priests is that when they're in the midst of people that are lost, they are supposed to be the representation of Jesus Christ to those folks. So your worship that's here physically, the ritual part, what you do, right? Worship is what you do. That's ritual. That's the physical part in this building. But the real worship that God is looking for us to grow in is in our representation of who he is by worshiping him, by living amazing lives outside of these doors. The quickest way that we can get God to come into our situation, the quickest way that we can get God to not just answer our prayer, but to be in his presence is not just to know how to lift our hands and to sing all the runs and to know when to move and when to dip and when to clap, but to know when to lend a helping hand to somebody out in the grocery store, when to pay for somebody's groceries, when to pay for somebody's gas, when to to tell your child that they're doing a great job when you know that they're struggling in their online classes right now. They got a, a five or a four and they need a two to pass the class, but you're just happy to have them. What you end up doing when you love on other people and when you play your position out in the world rather than in this space is you represent the love of Jesus Christ to those folks, telling them that I could probably love this guy because this person loves them enough that they're willing to give away anything and everything that they have in order for me to see that God is good. Think about it this way. When Jesus died on the cross, we always talk about how great it was that he died on the cross. But was it him dying on the cross for our sins that was beautiful to God? Or was it that his son literally worshipped him from the cross while he was dying, saying, God, all this is is me representing to these people how good you are. A part of your worship is representation. Come on, somebody write it down. Worship is my representation. The third part of their worship, remember Leviticus is in sections. We're we're moving towards the the, the middle of of, of the book. Let me know if this is good. I'm going to look to make sure that, that we're all trekking. The third part of our worship is that your worship is how you live. The last part that Moses has this conversation with God is in this conversation of purity. Now, now in the church, a lot of us have been scorned, a lot of us have been thrown away, and a lot of us might feel some type of way about this word because the word purity has made us feel weird about walking into churches. But what God explains to Moses is that purity is something that you need to be in my presence, but it's not something that I'm going to exile you out of like the establishment of people. So if you've ever been to a church organization, if you've ever been to any type of like God type of organization, and they kicked you out because you were impure, understand that you were dealing with man, not with God. Remember what I said earlier before, God's biggest want is to be as close to you as possible in relationship, but he can't do it if you're unholy. The only way that we become holy is by chasing towards what? Purity. So purity in your worship is worship is how you live. So in the book, of Leviticus in chapters 11 through 15 and then 18 through 20, um, Moses talking to God. God gives Moses these understandings that there's two different types of purity that I need for them to have. Now, remember what we talked about, the word context. What I'm about to read, a lot of you are going to say, well, I eat that or I've done that before. Am I impure? What you have to understand is that what God is talking to Moses about is at that time, but it's different where we are now. And I'll explain a little bit of that in a couple of seconds. The first thing that he tells Moses is this. He says that you have to ritually perform being pure. So there are some things that the, children, that, that, that the children of God have got to do, got to stay away from, and have to run away from in order for us to be in relationship. The first he says is that you can't contact with, you can't come in contact with anybody's bodily fluids, which means that if you were walking down the street, and somebody sneezed, you had to literally go shower and bathe, stay in your house for two weeks, pray, um, put, put forth offerings, and sacrifice a lamb every day for two weeks, and then come back out. 
Right now, that is, we hope that nobody's sneezing on you, and we pray that you are covered with the blood of Jesus. But if somebody sneezes in a room and you're there, that doesn't mean that you're impure. I, I want to make sure that we're getting this in context. The second thing is that if, he said, if you have a skin disease. Then he said, if you touch mold. Then he said, if you touch a dead body. Then he said, if you eat certain animals, like bats and pigs and fish without scales, which naturally are not good for our bodies as humans today. Context, he said to them then, but we shouldn't be doing it now. All we have to understand is all these things that God told Moses, the people of, the, the people of Israel couldn't do, couldn't eat, couldn't touch, couldn't be a part of. It wasn't that they were bad, but to God, all of these things were a symbolism of death. What I want to make sure you understand is this. You cannot worship God and be flirting with things that are killing you. Like, you can't worship God in spirit and in truth and still be trying to sleep around. Like, you can't worship God in spirit and in truth and still have your hand on a 40-ounce. Like and it's not saying that the 40-ounce is bad, right? Like, God's not saying that, that, that birds are bad. He's not saying that bats or pigs are bad. He's not saying that mold is bad. He's not saying that people are cursed and have diseases. He's not saying that, that bodily fluid, if somebody sneezes or if they wipe a booger on you, that they're bad. What he's saying is that if you want to have a relationship with me, those are, those are things that we cannot be in connection with because it causes death. The root of why we can't get into our relationship with God via worship is because of sin. Now, it's not about salvation and getting glorified and like, oh, I'm a made-over person. But the minute that we sin, the minute that we do that, we become impure. We become unholy, and God's holy presence is a place that we can't be. So what God tells Moses is that if my people want to be in my space, there are some things that they can't do. AWC, I want to I put something out on the table, and I want to preface something to you. If you call yourself a kingdom citizen, if you call yourself a lover of God, there are some things that we just can't do. And it's not because it's bad. It's just because if we are going to represent the king with our bodily worship, it increases the fact of somebody out there that doesn't know God saying that he's not real. Well, why would I worship God? You drink. Why would I worship God? You smoke. Why would I worship God? You lay hands on people when you get upset. There are some things that we don't do, not because they're inherently bad, but because God says, I want relationship with you. And relationship with God is more important than a substance that I can shoot in my arm. For me, relationship with God is going to make sure I can't eat certain things in my diet. But then what happens is this. When Moses is with the people, if people are eating pigs, if people are eating bats, if people are touching the dead, if people are touching mold, or, or if they have skin diseases, like they're making these things happen, what they're saying is that God is unimportant and what I put in my mouth is more important. So there's the second part. I know I'm kind of on you for a second, but I promise you it gets good in the end. Excuse me. The next part of the book of Leviticus is is the 18th through the 20th chapter. Now, is, is this good? I, I hope I, I haven't lost you. I, I hope we're all on, on, that we're trekking together. Is this thing of moral purity. So if there are things that you have to do and that you can't do and you have to run away from, then where are we supposed to run to? What does purity actually mean? And God tells Moses this, that there are three different areas that I want my people to run towards. I want them to run towards caring for the poor, those that don't have what they need. I need them to, to run away from sexual immorality, so basically have sexual integrity, and I need them to have social justice, meaning that they are able to govern themselves and provide justice for other people. So I want to make sure you understand this. Worship isn't just lifting your hands and crying out hallelujah and singing and the piano and the drums, but you're worshiping God when you care for somebody that has less than you. You're worshiping God when you witness to somebody about the goodness of God through your life and you give them an example that their life can be just as good. 
Like, you're worshiping God when you literally run away from sexual immorality, when you run away from bad relationships that happen after dark. Like, you're worshiping God when you stand up for something, when you're indignant against injustice, when you stand in the face of a bully, my high school and my, my, my middle school uh, kids that are, that are watching here on, uh, uh, on, on online, our Fusion students, our AWC kids, when somebody's on the playground and they get pushed and you stand up for them and you might get pushed too, you might have some bloody knees, you might have a bloody nose afterwards, but what I want to make sure you understand is that God sees our worship in so many different avenues rather than just lifting our hands, crying out to him, and singing. So after we understand these three points, let, let, let me go back. Remember, worship is what you do. Worship is how you represent. And the third thing is worship is how you live, which is your purity. But then when we get to the middle of the chapter, I mean the middle of the book, remember we talked about all these themes. If you read the word of God correctly in Leviticus, you read from the outside in. In the middle, what God provided was this thing where he says, I know that people are going to miss it. I know that people are going to be impure. I know that people are going to be unholy, that they're going to sin and forget it, or they're going to keep sinning and thinking, oh, I can sin on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday because I'm going to church on Sunday, and God will make me whole then. What God understands is that people are going to miss the mark. So I have to create for them this opportunity for them to throw all of their sin on something and for it to all be taken care of. That's where this word atonement comes from. What we have to understand is that while the people of Egypt were in the desert, they were literally following a step-by-step -step playbook on how to take the right steps to get in a relationship with God. And the last part, after you found your purity, after you understand that you're a priest and you're supposed to represent, and then after you understand the rituals of what you're supposed to do in worship, the last part is atonement. So in Leviticus 16 and 17, we understand that once a year, the priest that was at that time, he would take two goats. He would take one goat in the, on the right side of the field, and he would take another goat on the left side of the field. <clears throat> one of the goats on the right would be killed. That goat was used as the sacrifice to, to basically cover the people's issues, like the blood. I don't know if you see foreshadowing here, but they're sacrificing a lamb. The blood is supposed to wash the people clean, and they're supposed to be clean before God, and now they're supposed to be pure. I don't know, I don't know if you're catching on. But then there was this other goat. What would happen with this goat is that the priest would come to this goat, he would talk to the goat, and he would basically confess to God all of the sins of, of, for him or herself and all the sins of the people. Then symbolically, they would take all of the sins that they talked about, they would place them on the head of the goat, and they would banish the goat into, uh, uh, into the wilderness or into the desert. This is where we get the term, I don't know if you know it, scapegoat. But one thing that I want to make sure that you understand today, one thing that I want to make sure that you understand in this series is that when it comes to atonement, when it comes to what you do, how you represent, when it comes to how you live your life, all of the children of Israel had to be told when to take those steps. But when Jesus died on the cross, he was the sacrificial lamb whose blood was shed over our bodies and took care of our sin, but he also was the scapegoat. He was the one that we were able to put all of our cares on. He was the one that we were able to put all of our sin, all of our impurities on so that we could achieve holiness. So worship is not so much about you trying to get right with God. Worship is more about you getting right with yourself so that you can become holy and be in God's presence. But the last thing that I want to make sure that you understand today is that you're actually in the driver's seat. 
The children of Israel were able to cheat. They were able to go to Moses. They were able to go to Aaron. They were able to, to basically lean on them and ask them, like, hey, can you help me out? Like, I just messed up with my wife. Can you pray for me? Or, hey, I just lied over here or I just manipulated over here. Like, like, like can we worship together? And one thing that they would tell them, Moses and Aaron would tell them, is that we can't worship because you're unholy. You're not pure. You're not living life correctly. You're not representing God correctly. So before we sacrifice your body, you remember what we talked about um, earlier in, in, in Romans 12 and 1. Before we break your body as a sacrifice to God, we have to, we have to check and inspect the quality of your body. So as we move forward in this sermon series, there's one thing that we have to understand, that God is holy. And in order for us to worship God in spirit and in truth, we must also be holy. So we're going to do something right now. They're going to begin to play. And what we're going to do is we're going to begin to sacrifice our bodies, living sacrifices to God, so that we can worship God in spirit and in truth. This is how it looks. When they take the goat and they would confess their sins to the goat, it wasn't that they were confessing their sins to the animal. It was more so that they were telling God, in an, in an act to get closer to you, I have to put all of my, this bad stuff that's in the inside of me, I got to put it in something and send it away. This is the reason why God sent Jesus. He sends Jesus to the, to, to the cross. Jesus dies, and Jesus becomes the scapegoat. But he doesn't become the scapegoat just for salvation. He becomes the scapegoat so that we can become holy and enter back into godly relationship with God the Father. 